Hello, beloved. This is my neighborhood. I've preached in a lot worse places in my life. I thought I would welcome you to my neck of the woods that I might share with you some things that have been on my heart. So let me start this way knowing full well that uh, it is a North Carolina shoot, so we might be competing with um, bugs and geese and guns. So just so you know. Peter Weiner writes for The Atlantic, and last week he did an interview with Dr. Francis Collins, who was appointed to the National Institutes of Health back in 2009. And uh, before that, he was one of the lead researchers in some groundbreaking therapies into cystic fibrosis. And so the interview that Weiner does last week, it's really two interviews in one. The, the first interview is asking Collins all he knows about the coronavirus and the nature of its transmissibility and the uniqueness and the elusiveness that it has shown itself and being able to be understood and, and also his insight into how we might want to respond or how we might think about responding. That's the whole first part of the interview. And then the second part of the interview is dedicated entirely to talking to Francis Collins about his own spiritual pilgrimage. It's a really long read. And when I was done with it, I sort of asked myself, why did the interviewer choose to put those two topics into the same article. Two very different topics, kind of, at least on a first read, smushed together. Because if you think about it, in our day, we got all sorts of questions in our minds about what this virus is, what should our response be, what will the impact be in time. And as most people are thinking these days, you know, we're, we're looking to find solutions to problems. We do not have time to talk about the mysteries of the universe and faith like him. And yet, Wainer still puts these two topics together in the same article. And then, just at that moment, I kind of caught myself. Because you and I are asking all these questions about how do we think about what's happening? What are we going to do? What should our response be? What is the impact? And at the same moment that you and I are perhaps thinking that the ideas of faith could, should kind of be kind of pushed to the margins and not to be considered at a time and at a crisis situation like this, I kind of see why the interviewer did what he did. It's reasonable for us to be asking all the sorts of questions that everybody is asking, but we shouldn't be doing so in a way detached from those deeper questions about reality, the nature of the universe and what holds things together, and most importantly, what is going to animate our response and what's gonna sustain us in these times of uncertainty. Those two different topics, they're different, they're distinct, but they're inseparable. See, in Francis Collins' own story that he tells at the end of the article, he was raised in pretty much a nominal Episcopal environment, and by the time he leaves for college, he left all that behind and thought faith was only an emotional crutch. It was just for the foolish, and he was primed and ready to marshal every argument he could imagine to put down anybody that gave an idea to transcendent faith. And then his third year at UNC Chapel Hill Medical School, he's sitting at the bedside of people who are dying. And he comes to this realization, and late in the article, you hear him say this, watching those individual fates, what was going to be coming soon, the end of their life, I was trying to imagine what I would do in that circumstance. This was in North Carolina. 
There were a lot of wonderful individuals, many of them having had relatively simple lives, but lives that were totally dedicated to helping other people. Many of these people were deeply committed to faith. I was puzzled and unsettled to see how they approached something that I personally was pretty terrified about, the end of their lives. They had peace and equanimity and even a sort of sense of joyfulness that there was something beyond and I didn't know what to do with it. It made me realize that I had never really gone beyond the most superficial consideration of whether God exists or a serious consideration about what happens after you die. Here is a man who has had his foot in the world of thinking about diagnoses and prognoses and therapies, fully in the realm of inquiry and science, and now confronted with things that science has no answers for, and he realized how flat-footed he'd found himself. And though those topics are as distinct as the night is from the day, they can't but help go together. We've been listening to Jesus for several weeks. We've been listening to the encounters that he has, and we've been honoring the fact that he describes himself quite often as a physician. And we believe him to be one who in the course of human history made the ultimate house call. And what he's gonna argue from the passage that we're gonna to listen to today is that life, the fullest life is a life in God. And the way one finds that life, the best way to describe it is in terms of something that we're all familiar with, a birth, a new birth, a rebirth. And we wanna ask three questions in the middle of a crisis situation, in the middle of a moment of us asking ourselves, when is anything gonna be turned back to normal? We wanna know about this rebirth, three things. What is it? How does it happen? most importantly, why does it even matter at a time like this? What is it? How does it happen? Why does it matter? Amanda McClam is going to read you the text. So if I might ask you in the comfort of wherever you are listening to this sermon to stand and to hear these words and to consider what she has to say. Today's central text is John 3, 1 through 17. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How could a man be born again when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to that we have seen, 
but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Jesus in this passage is not giving a lecture. He has been petitioned to do an impromptu Q&A with someone in that day we might think of as credentialed. Nicodemus, he's a Pharisee. Now in our day, you use the word Pharisee, you immediately mean a negative sort of way, of stop being so Pharisaical. In that day, a Pharisee was a mark of distinction. It demonstrated that you had esteem in your understanding of the law of Moses, your obedience to the law of Moses. You demonstrated exemplary ability to teach and interpret the law of Moses. This is who Nicodemus is. He is a credentialed figure who approaches this Jesus, who is a man of no reputation, a man of no name, a man of no distinction, a man of no credentials. And Nicodemus is out to say to Jesus, right there under cover of darkness so as not to compromise his own reputation as a man with credentials. And he in so many words says to Jesus, look, we've heard what you say, we've seen what you've done, and it's pretty clear to us that you are somehow in step with God in a way that few of us understand, and we want to understand that more. And in a moment like that, you would think that Jesus would say, thank you, I appreciate that you're very kind in saying so. Instead, he cuts right to the chase. Jesus moves right abruptly into that moment and says unto him, look, unless one is born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. And immediately you can imagine Nicodemus already raising his eyebrows, wondering why would Jesus bring that up? Because look, Nicodemus, he, he pretty much understands. Look, I, 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 don't, I can't write you off. Uh, you've said enough and done enough to make us think that you're worth something, that you mean something, but I don't know what to do with you. I don't have a category for you. And I would dare say that a lot of you that might be listening in from a, a far place that aren't part of this church and don't share in this faith, uh, in some ways you understand Nicodemus. You, you know enough about Jesus that you realize, I can't like, just write him off out of hand. His, his, his historical impact is too large, too vast for me to just sort of dismiss out of hand. And yet I don't have a category for you. I can't write you off. You're, you're kind of like Nicodemus, and I dare say that is true of anybody, whether you believe in God or not, whether you were a Christian or not. There are moments, especially in moments when you feel like the sky is falling, where you look at Jesus and you think to yourself, what am I gonna do with you? How am I supposed to think of you in the middle of all of this? That's the kind of moment that Nicodemus is walking into. And so when Jesus rather abruptly says, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God, you can imagine Nicodemus feeling a little perplexed. Now for Jesus to use that phrase, born again, the Greek word there for again is the Greek word anothen. And in other places in the New Testament, it does refer to something happening a second time, a repeated action. But several times, even in chapter three and elsewhere in John's gospel, whenever the Greek word anothen comes on the scene, it always means from above. 
from beyond an earthly domain. And so it's reasonable to understand that what Jesus is talking about here is that there is something like a birth, a birth that has to happen, a rebirth of a certain sort that originates from beyond you, from outside yourself, over which you had no control. That's what it means to be born again, to be born from above. And that's why Jesus has walked right past the compliment and cut right to the chase. Why does he go there? Why does he argue that something fundamental, something crucial is riding on this thing, that something has to happen to you that can only be equated with or uh, thought of in terms of a birth? Why does he go there? Why does he insist that anyone who would come to see the kingdom and be part of the future that God has for us is like what John says earlier in chapter one of a birth that is not of blood, that is not of the flesh, that is not by the will of man, but is of God. Why does Jesus jump there all of a sudden? Because he knows who he's talking to. He knows his audience. He doesn't just say things to be remembered. He speaks things in light of who he's speaking with. And who is he speaking to? If you're a Pharisee, like Nicodemus, then you value, you have ordered your life around the knowledge and obedience and exemplification of the law. And you have come to believe yourself as one who is set apart, set apart to a certain work, perhaps like few others are, and you believe yourselves to be righteous in God's sight because you believe God is righteous and he looks with favor upon the righteous and through your own understanding and through your own obedience and through your own exemplifying work of obedience, you believe you are set apart. Maybe not in an arrogant way, but with great conviction. And for Jesus to jump and cut to the chase and saying, unless you're born again from above, you'll never see the kingdom. Jesus is saying this, Nicodemus, Nicodemus, your obedience, your knowledge, your ability to teach, that stuff matters. Just not in the way that you think. Not in the way or the degree to which you think it does. See, whether you believe in or God or not, you get somebody like Nicodemus. You understand where he comes from because what he embodies is true of that day and is true of every day. You were told from an early age, if you do good things, you will get good things. If you do your chores, you will get an allowance. If you get good grades, you might get a good scholarship, you might get a good job. You work hard in that job, you might get a promotion, you might get a pay raise. You do those good things through your own effort, you will be esteemed. And you know what? That's not a lie. That claim is borne out time and time again. You're shaped by it in ways you had no idea. You believe that because that idea works and it works for Nicodemus and it works for me and it works for you. We know what it is like to believe that our efforts will translate into esteem. And there's nothing wrong with that. It works. The problem the problem arises for Nicodemus and for anybody that operates in that fashion, whether you believe in God or not, is when you start to take that idea to an ultimate degree. When you start to think of your ultimate worth, your ultimate value, your ultimate meaning, always and exclusively and foundationally on the basis of whatever efforts you've committed yourself to. Look, uh, righteousness, 
It's a religious word. You hear it pretty often in church. You might not hear it in any other setting, but if you want to update that word righteousness into a modern frame, you might think of righteousness as thinking of yourself as worthy, as acceptable, as good enough. Righteousness translates into the sense of worth. And for Jesus to say that our righteousness before God, that the favor, the beginning of God's favor for us, the beginning and the foundation of God's favor to us, for us to have to be born from above is to say that life, that foundation of his favor, it's not done by you, it's done for you and in you. As Paul Zoll put it, he's a theologian back east, he says when it comes to understanding Jesus, it comes down to this. The question of your worth is now out of your hands. In the same way that your physical birth you had nothing to do with, so it is true of your spiritual birth. It's not by you. It's only done for you. It's done in you. It's done to you. And it comes from something far beyond you. And it has nothing to do with your efforts here below. That life, its beginning and its foundation, is entirely of him. That's what rebirth is. That's the nature of this rebirth by which life in God begins. Your worth is taken out of your hands. And Jesus goes on to say that that rebirth is of water and the spirit See, when Nicodemus first hears about this idea of being born from above, he immediately doesn't get it. He immediately starts to think of Jesus in rather very flat, two-dimensional physical terms, material terms. And he says, what, you know, I'm old. How do I get born? And what, am I supposed to crawl back up in a mother's womb and be born again? He misunderstands it entirely. And Jesus says, look, not only is this birth from something outside of your control, but it is of water and the spirit. And in invoking those two very familiar concepts to Nicodemus, he is saying that this rebirth, its nature, has to do with cleansing and the receiving of the very presence of God into yourself. It has to do with cleansing. It has to do with receiving. The affliction that you and I have is too deep, it's too severe, it's too pervasive, it's too acute, it's too chronic for anything that you and I might do in order to remedy the situation. This cleansing, this rebirth requires a cleansing and the receiving of the very presence of God, His Spirit. It's necessary. There's no way around it. You're in your mother's womb, it's all dark. You see nothing and you don't care to see anything. You think that's all there is. And then you come out of the birth canal and then there's light and color and temperature and texture and suddenly the world is alive and you are awake to it. In the same way, a spiritual life, a spiritual rebirth is like that. You are awoken. And now you see things that you did not see before. Now you sense things that you did not sense before because now that which has kept you estranged from this father now that which has left you earlier and originally in a state of rebellion, that's been resolved. That's the nature of this rebirth. But how does it happen? That's what it is. How does it happen? Nicodemus thinks he's coming for a meeting of the minds, but Jesus invites him to speak almost like inviting a patient into his doctor's office. So Jesus is out to cure Nicodemus of two errors. The first we've already talked about, 
the error about how the beginning and foundation of God's favor comes, what a re how a rebirth is necessary. The second error that Nicodemus suffers from is trying to figure out how does that rebirth happen. And that rebirth happens entirely as a function of one thing, who Jesus is. He's out to correct in Nicodemus not only the foundation of God's favor, but who Jesus himself is. That's what it comes down to. That's, that's a question about how Nicodemus will see him. That is the question that Jesus puts to every person who ever comes into an encounter with him. How do you see him? And Jesus is out to say that he is unique, he is set apart, because he is the only one who has ever had a foot both in heaven and on earth. He said, only the Son of Man has ascended into heaven and descended to the earth. Only the Son of Man has done that. He is uniquely set apart, and he's out to say that. And in our world, that loves to be spiritual and but not religious, the whole part about God consciousness and rebirth and letting go and relinquishing that, man, that plays in Peoria, that plays in Asheville, that plays everywhere. But when you start talking and listening to Jesus start saying about how his you is uniquely set apart, that's where everybody starts to feel the awkward stares and they start stirring their drinks and they start getting really quiet because that's the part that sounds like, no, nope, not going for that. The whole spirituality thing, let's talk till the cows come home. But when you start talking about Jesus as being unique, that's when everybody shuts up and says, thanks, no, I'm not for that, not inclusive enough. And yet that's what Jesus is out to say to Nicodemus, is what he's out to say to us. He is the one uniquely set apart who's had a, had a foot both in heaven and on earth. And for him to make a claim like that, you know, look, anybody around these days that claims that they are the son of man, they don't get anointed as a king, they get committed to a ward. But fortunately, Jesus, right on the heels of making that claim, says one other thing that is out to substantiate his claim, that's out to speak of what his destiny is. And he does so in the most bizarre ways of doing so. He appeals to this bizarre moment in the Old Testament, in the book of Numbers, Numbers chapter 21, Israel has been liberated from Exodus, liberated from Egypt, they're walking through the wilderness, they've been provided for in any number of ways, and yet they automatically start grumbling when it gets hard. Suddenly their world starts to cave in on them, and they start hurling accusations, first at Moses, then at God, and in that moment what happens? They start getting uh, surrounded and accosted by a horde of snakes, they start getting bitten, they start falling into convulsions until they start calling out to Moses saying, please, plead on our behalf, we've sinned, we're sorry for grumbling, we're sorry for not trusting, and the Lord tells Moses, I want you to fashion the image of a snake and hoist it on a pole and tell them to look at the snake, and if they look, they'll be healed. Moses does what the Lord says, they look at this image of a snake, they're bitten, and then they're rescued, they're healed. Why in the world would Jesus invoke that bizarre story from Numbers 21 to speak about his own fate? because that's the closest analogy about what's going about to happen to him. Israel, cursed for their grumbling, their rebellion, they are to look upon that which is killing them, that they might be healed. Jesus himself, he says, just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man will be lifted up in order that you might have eternal life. Jesus himself will be cursed. He will be lifted up on a cross, and those who look to him will be rescued. That's what we call the gospel. 
How does this rebirth happen? By looking to the one who was hoisted on a pole to rescue you from a curse. Israel was stuck in its own rebellion. We are stuck on our own estrangement. And when we look to him, somehow we're healed. That's the nature of the rebirth. How does it happen? It happens when you become persuaded of something. When you become persuaded of your own condition. When you become persuaded of a condition that is intractable, that is beyond you, that suffers from brokenness and frailty and weakness and corruption and guilt, and you realize, I cannot save or rescue myself. Rebirth begins with being persuaded of that, but then it also begins by being persuaded of who he is, of his unique place, of his unique charter, of his unique suitability to resolve that situation that is in you because he is uniquely set apart as one who had a foot both in heaven and on earth and can speak into our condition that way. That is the nature of the rebirth. Friends, we're in lockdown. And why are we in lockdown? One of the big reasons we're in lockdown is that those who are strong are being called upon to restrain themselves for the sake of those who are vulnerable that they might live. But in this day, on this cross, the one who was strong made himself vulnerable, made himself weak, that we might live without end. You are seeing the gospel taking place across this land, across this world, and you are the very image of what Jesus has done to speak of that rebirth. When you become persuaded both of that condition and his provision, that's how it happens. Let's be honest with ourselves, though. As lovely and as sanguine and as symmetrical as that all sounds, I know where yours and my minds usually are in these days. What we might lose on the other side of this season. We might lose our jobs. We might lose our living. We might lose our meaning. We might lose our sense of purpose and of self. We might lose loved ones. We might lose our lives. So the case is playing out in any number of places, many of which we don't even want to count. That's where our minds are, and we're afraid. We're afraid of what we might lose. And therefore, the last question that we have to ask ourselves is, why does it matter? Why does this talk of rebirth matter? It matters for one in a very general sense. Because what this rebirth tells us, both its nature and how it comes to us, is that at the bottom of all things is a love that is without end, it is a love that will prevail. It is a love that is stronger than death. This God who acted in this way did not do so in a begrudging way because he had nothing better to do and because he just wanted to hold us at arm's length like we were a mother holding a soiled cloth to put in the dishwasher and the washing machine. It was not a begrudging act on God's part. It was a loving act. A loving act that we were absolutely needful of. The reason it matters is because this is out to tell us that there's a love stronger than death. And that love will endure. And that love will hold us up and sustain us. But let me give you three quick reasons to end this sermon for why it really matters. One has to do with something you might say is rather superficial. Everybody's plans have changed. In the course of a day, it's turned on a dime. And everything that we were planning to do for the next weeks or months, that is off the table. David Brooks wrote an op-ed piece last week with a rather crude title. I invite you to look it up yourself. 
but he says this about us. Now we are all understanding what cancer patients experience every single day. Their plans changed with a single visit. And so listen to what he says about what we all now get. I'm beginning to appreciate the wisdom that cancer patients share. We just can't know. We don't expect life to be predictable or fair. We don't, so therefore, don't try to tame the situation with some feel-good lie or confident prediction. Embrace the uncertainty of this whole life or death deal. There's a weird clarity that comes with that embrace. There's a humility that comes with realizing you're not the glorious plans you made for your life. When the plans are upset, there's a quieter and better you beneath them. Look, you don't have to contract cancer to be humbled enough to realize or to take a tight grip off your plans. You just have to see your life through the lens of rebirth. You just have to see your life through the lens of how everything that you have is a gift and that the greatest thing you have can't be thought of anything other than a gift. And then you think of your plans differently. That's one reason why rebirth matters in an age of coronavirus. The second is like unto it, like no other time, are we convinced of the fact that we do not have control? We exercise our will in all sorts of ways and we come to accustom ourselves to becoming the masters of our fate and then something like coronavirus happens and we discover there was always a limitation on our control. And the sooner we get that, the better. Dan Allender is a counselor and one of you gave me a quote from him this week where he said this, our attempts to not feel off guard actually leads to greater self-absorption and the foolish conviction that we can control the world. But true core strength is willing to feel helpless and disturbed, and it results in a self-disciplined and passionate life rather than a, in a controlling life that fears what may arise suddenly. Oh yes, everything has arisen suddenly. And in a moment like this, we feel disturbed. We feel ashamed maybe even at how unprepared we feel, how flat-footed we find ourselves. And yet there is nothing like believing that you have nothing apart from what he has given to you by way of a gift. You are helpless and disturbed. You are weak and frail. That was never in any question, but you are also cherished and delighted in if it in fact Jesus is true and was risen from the dead. That's the second thing why it matters, why rebirth matters. But the third thing has everything to do with how we're gonna deal with each other in this season of great duress, distress, and uncertainty. What are we gonna do now? no matter how long this lasts, short or long. Langdon Gilkey was a man that grew up in, in pre-World War II uh, China. He lived with his family and a bunch of Westerners. He's there in the run-up to World War II. Japan invades China, arrests him and his Western friends, um, encamps them in a concentration camp. And at that point, Langdon Gilkey is a man of his age. He is high and intoxicated with humanism and reason, and he believes himself that even in these difficult and, and, and um, trying situations, that reason and goodwill and humanism will be able to allow them to not only survive, but to thrive. And on the front end, it works magically. He sees the solidarity. He sees the reason. He sees the way people think and cooperate in goodwill. And then it starts to change. It's easy to be of goodwill and of good cheer and all on the same page and focusing and uh, looking out for one another at the front end. And then when it gets hard, what did he discover? That self-interest set in, even among the priests and the missionaries who were among them. Self-interest set in, the, the ability to rationalize injustice set in, and suddenly Langdon Gilkey, who was intoxicated with humanism, woke up 
and he was, in a sense, reborn to an entirely different belief that something else had to animate, something else had to govern the lives of those who were thrown together, especially in times of distress. And he came to this conclusion at the end of that experience. He said this, human beings need God because their precarious and contingent lives can find final significance only in his almighty and eternal purposes. And because their fragmentary selves must find their ultimate center only in his transcendent love. If the meaning of men's lives is centered solely in their own achievements, these two are vulnerable to the twists and turns of history, and their lives will always teeter on the abyss of pointlessness and inertia. And if men's ultimate loyalty is centered in themselves, then the effect of their lives on others around them will be destructive of that community on which all will depend. Only in God is there an ultimate loyalty that does not breed injustice and cruelty and a meaning from which nothing on heaven and on earth can separate us. That is the message of rebirth in the one who is lifted up on our behalf. You are not the sum total of your achievements. You are humbled not by your reason or your will, but you are humbled by a God who says, apart from me you can do nothing, and apart from being born from above you will have nothing. What is going to humble us enough to think well of the other? What is going to sustain us in however long this takes to think well of others more than ourselves? It is the fact that in him alone and by this rebirth we are his, and in life there comes to us through that rebirth. Friends, beloved, Whatever this moment calls from us, it calls us to believe. It calls us to believe. No matter what you may lose, in the end, why rebirth matters most is that no matter what you might lose or will lose, it is still less than what you can never lose. And that is why this is a call to believe that. And for those who already do, you've never had a time like this to sit aside and meditate on truths like that than perhaps like you do now. I encourage you, who come to Jesus like Nicodemus did under, under cover of darkness and who might ever even darken the doorstep of a church by coming to it online, I encourage you to believe, to see him as the persuasive figure he is. And for those who have and who even struggle in that belief, as I do and as everyone does, I encourage you to meditate upon this truth because while the things that we are concerned with in our day and the eternities that are beyond our control, while those are distinct topics, they're inseparable. What God has brought together, let no man tear asunder. Amen.